Welcome, welcome, welcome to the John of All Trades Podcast, episode 303. I'm your host, John X. Thank you for joining us. Glad to have you back once again. And on this week's show, man, all I have to say is there is a conversational surprise around every corner. It is a joy. It is a delight. This is some of the most fun I've had on this show in a long time. And my guest is another Golden High School Class of 2000 alum, Dana Shirestone. Now, Dana and I... We didn't particularly hang out in high school, but we were always friendly. I always liked her. I always thought she was cool. And we reconnected recently at my high school reunion. And you can read about that on the John of All Trades blog. I wrote about five ways I've been mashing the nostalgia joy buzzer recently. And my reunion was definitely a big part of that. Dana was there at all three events. So we got some time to catch up and talk about what we were doing. We had talked about her being on the show. Now, I went into this not exactly knowing what to expect. And what I got was pure gold. This was a delight. And like I said, a surprise around every corner. So, tell you what I'm talking about here. First of all, she talks about the struggles she had academically growing up, which I knew nothing about. I always knew her to be very smart, very sharp. I did not know the amount of work she had to put in to do that. And hearing her describe what her elementary school experience was like, or high school experience was like, taking the SATs a bunch of times, and her ultimate career goal which was, at the time, chemical engineer, it's a remarkable story. All I can say is head explode in many ways. Secondly, we talk about her time working a very boring but very dangerous job as part of a NASA contractor. So as a chemical engineer there, not a lot of room for error, helped fuel her love of compliance and her appreciation of getting all the steps exactly right. Because once something goes into space, there's nothing you can do about it. That transitions into her becoming a geochemist and modeling the complex chemistry of groundwater systems. Now, in that, this is weird. This is where we share some common vocabulary. She'd worked on Superfund sites. I have a background working at the Rocky Mountain Arsenal National Wildlife Refuge. We talk about environmental impact statements. EISs are something that have been in my orbit for as long as I've been in my career. We talk about the Pebble Mine, which a company I worked for touched very, very briefly. We talk about rulemakings. We talk about regulatory processes. And I know if you're not in this world, that sounds horrifically boring, but I promise hang in there during this episode because there's great insights to be had. And then finally, we end up in the cannabis space, right? We talk about how she got involved in the industry despite knowing not a whole lot about it, almost nothing about it, how she leveled up, how she learned, how she took on different roles through startups, working on the marijuana side, working on the hemp side, and now in her own entrepreneurial way. And now she has her own entrepreneurial venture. And I got to tell you, there are diversions through here as well. Around one corner, you'll talk about rodents in rural Utah eating this highly volatile propellant and exploding if you ran over them. Around another, she'll start talking about Burning Man and how she's been to Burning Man a number of times. Around another, a crazy story involving a bag of chewing tobacco. So when I say, this conversation kept me on my toes, I mean that sincerely. Again, this is some of the most fun I've had, and I'm absolutely grateful that I reconnected with Dana Shirestone in advance of our reunion, and I got to spend some time with her there, and then through this chat, because she's a remarkable person with an incredible story, and I'm thrilled to share it with you now. So we'll get to that in just a second. 
First of all, pay some love to our sponsor, 4Degrees, the number 4, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. Anything you're doing online, 4Degrees can help you do it better. Whether you are building a website, trying to reach people through some online campaign, whether that's social media marketing, online advertising, hell, email newsletter campaigns, they will help you build this campaign in a way that touches the people you need to reach the most where they are. They will get the message right. They will get it in front of them. It will make a difference to your bottom line in a way that very little else will. Four Degrees is winning awards for its campaigns. They are taking the technology used in political campaigns and applying that on any number of fronts. So no matter what you're doing online, Four Degrees can help you do it better. The number four, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. Now then, let's get to episode 303. I cannot wait for you to hear this. My guest is Dana Shirestone. She is a chemical engineer. She is a geochemist. She's an entrepreneur. And she's got an unbelievably fun story to listen to. And her episode starts right now. I've actually gotten to spend a lot more time with with the second kiddo. Um, I had a really stressful job the first time, had to go immediately back to work pretty much. And so I felt like I've gotten a chance to, you know, just cuddle him and love him and hug him and appreciate and enjoy him more than I did with my first son. So I'm actually really grateful for that. Yeah, no, that's cool. As, as I mentioned, we saw each other at the reunion. I thought that was an amazing turnout uh, at that event. And you were there like all three nights, right? I was, yeah. Yeah. So this is Dana Shirestone. She is an alumnus of Golden High School class of 2000. We reconnected shortly before the reunion. We spent, I don't know, a fair amount of time at the reunion together. And you told me like what you were doing was really cool. And then I read up on you and man, your journey is fascinating. So, I mean, we were, I would say like we didn't really hang out much in high school, but we were in similar classes. I, I always enjoyed chatting with you anytime we like worked together on something. I thought we had a nice vibe and, um, take me through sort of what, uh, what the journey was like for you and, and feel free to start after high school because that's my last sort of frame of reference for when we spent significant time together. Well, I'll have to go back even farther than that just a little bit. Two significant facts. Uh, I am both a first and third child. So I have a sister that's <laughs> 13 years old and 15 years older than I am. So I barely remembered them. They were out of the house by the time I was about four. So when wow. I was in kindergarten, my oldest sister was getting her PhD in astrophysics. <laughs> Jeez, okay. And so, you know, when when people would ask me what I wanted to do when I grew up, like hard science was just the only answer that made any sense. <laughs> sure. you know, my, my dad has a PhD in petrophysics. We were a very scientifically oriented house. Wow. Um, okay. So, this, so in my house, just real quick, that it's a little bit different. Like I, I remember growing up, I was interested in like sports and like pro wrestling and stuff. But, um, my dad, all I knew was he wore a suit and he talked to people for a living. And my fallback career was, I'm like, well, I guess I can do whatever my dad did. And sure enough, uh, I found out later he was in like lobbying, public relations, professional communications, things like that. Sure enough, I ended up doing what my dad did. So the modeling in houses is it, it's happening on a level that I don't think we always realize. But I mean, it sounds like you were pretty dialed into that right from the get go. Well, my parents ran their own business and my grandparents lived next door to us and they ran their own business, too. So nice. uh, I have some entrepreneurship in my background for sure. But the, the second deciding factor is that I'm incredibly dyslexic. Really? Um, when I was about four, 
they took me down to Children's Hospital, and the doctor said that I would never learn how to read or do math. And I say that I got one scoop of dyslexia and two scoops of ornery. <laughs> so I was like, screw that. I'm going to figure it out. I didn't actually learn how to read till I was in fifth grade. And I didn't learn how to do fractions till I was a, a freshman in Calc 1. Oh, my gosh. I Really? I, like, how did you yeah. I, how did you get through school that way? Yeah, well, in high school, uh, I don't know if you took IMP math, but oh. it was sort of <laughs> write down something and you'll get credit for it. Um <laughs> I took the SAT my junior year, and I don't remember what the score was, but bad. So I started going to community college at night after high school. I'd go over there, and I took algebra, pre-calc, and trigonometry over there. So I would start my day about 7.30 at Golden High School and end at about 10.30 at night uh, my junior and senior year. The 13th time I took the SAT, I got a high enough score to get into engineering school. My gosh, you took the SAT 13 times? Yep. Wow. Uh, it's mostly about being able to do simple math very fast, and I just had to practice until I could do it fast enough. Okay. I mean, so to that end, it's like anything else. It's like when when you're anyone can learn to juggle, I suppose, you know. But like the people who are really good can do it like really fast or like with a high degree of complexity. I never really thought about it that way because arithmetic. I've always been very blessed that arithmetic has come to me very very fast. Um, and I can do it in my head really quickly. But when it comes to advanced math, once numbers started really disappearing from math in a pronounced way. When it becomes letters. <laughs> yeah. When it becomes all letters and not like English letters either. Right. <laughs> uh, I, I go, ooh, okay, nope, I'm out of my depth here. And that's about where I tapped out. And hence, I'm a liberal arts major. But Dana, that's I, I never knew that going through school. What, what elementary school did you go to? I went to Mitchell. Okay. Um, and I was one of those weird kids that was in special ed and gifted and talented at the same time. <laughs> that, yeah, it was, it was kind of weird, but a lot of successful entrepreneurs are dyslexic, like some really high percentage of them because every problem that you've ever seen in your life is impossible and everyone else seems to have a really easy time doing it. And like, you just try opening a door if you're dyslexic. Really? I, I always, it says pull right there, but I'm going to push it every single time because it doesn't translate correctly. Really? Mm-hmm. Uh, and my- you learn to work around it. And you, you do that by uh, doing and overdoing everything. It takes me like four times as long to do a homework assignment. But I was really, really sure what direction I wanted to go. So I just toughed through it. Well, and you also, I mean, it sounds like have a very rich vein of defiance running through you. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, which very I, very independent. I wouldn't say defiant. I would say extremely independently motivated. Okay, so I mean, yeah, you you have uh, you have self motivation from within, which I mean that will will serve you better than almost anything else. If you can combine that with work ethic, there's really nothing that's ever going to stop you. So I mean, this story is remarkable, and it it reminds me of something when we were at the reunion that everyone had a unique experience in high school that I think I underestimated like to a person. Mm. Um, you, you, you look at someone and you go, no, I have them pegged. I have them figured out and we'd get together and it's 20 years later, the graduation of high school represents the approximate midpoint of our, our entire lives and reflecting on it. Now you go, okay, you're, we're kind of underestimating each other in so many ways. So, so cool to connect later like that. Yeah, I was surprised how much I have in common with our high school classmates versus the people that I went to college with. 
Really? Um, a lot of people in our class are entrepreneurial. A lot of people in our class have kids. And a lot of the people I went to college with work for big corporations um, and, and don't have kids. You know, and everybody makes their own decision. But it was just really interesting to kind of come back and see who's still local here and, and what they're doing with their lives. Totally. And that's one of the things I love about this show, too, is just connecting with other entrepreneurs because – despite the fact that we're all doing something different, we're all connected in that way. We all sort of understand what it is to make the leap, take the risk and just put it out there. And you're right. I, I think entrepreneurs were overrepresented in our class, like in a lot of ways, which was, was fascinating and really rewarding. Part of it's the economics of our generation too. I mean, the game is, is a little bit broken and the only way to win is to change the rules. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's fair. And to your point, though, I mean, you said you went to college for engineering. I I don't know necessarily what the market is for entrepreneurial engineering. That those those feel in some ways like oppositional skill sets. Am I wrong about that? So chemical engineering, in particular. My God! And, and so wait a minute, you did chemical engineering too? Yeah. So yep. just the high, like the highest and hardest level of math and science. Am I wrong about that? Miss Bryson fell out of her chair laughing. She was our chemistry teacher when I told her I was going to be a chemical engineer. And she kind of was just like, we'll see how that goes. Because I was terrible at chemistry class. And I was still terrible at chemistry when I got to college. And by the time I left, I was really good at it. <laughs> okay. Um, I had a mission growing up and in high school, like you probably wouldn't have noticed it, but my family was really, really poor. Uh, my parents ran their own business and it was not doing very well. And so I knew the day I graduated, I wanted to be able to have a good paying job and be able to support myself. So that knocked a whole bunch of majors right off the chart. I wanted to do science anyway. And I live in the house that my grandfather built, that my dad helped to build. I'm the third generation and my sons are the fourth. And I always knew I wanted to live here and I knew that it was going to be crazy expensive to do so because it's, it's 10 acres. Wow. Um, so I also knew that I had to set myself up to have a good solid financial basis to even be able to purchase this property at some point. Yeah. No, and, no joke. I, and I just have to call this out because two episodes before this one, I interviewed a guy named Peter Moore, someone I worked with. And who I wrote radio for and things like that. And when we would do mic tests, he would start it the same way. And you use the sentence that he always used during the mic test. Well, his was, I was born in the house my grandfather built. Mm -hmm. And that is the first line in Richard Nixon's autobiography. So wow. like, like of all things. So that's a bizarre little <laughs> trivia question. But uh, I hear you. I mean, to be able to do that. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And when you see the struggle, yeah, it, it emboldens you to want to take the, take the risk and also have financial security for yourself. I, I totally identify with that. I get it. So mechanical engineering is the most, I don't know, common and transferable of the engineering types. Um, but my brother was a natural born mechanic. He spoke car from the minute he could speak anything. So I was a little intimidated by mechanical engineering. We had a fleet of broken lawnmowers that I had no interest in. Um, <laughs> Uh, I went with chemical engineering because it's kind of the most broadly applicable. Um, many, many people who get into med school actually have chemical engineering as their background um, okay. because it's really hard and and very cross-applicable. So I did that for my undergrad and then found a job with a NASA contractor, uh, ATK Launch Systems out in Utah, working on the space shuttle booster motors, Trident missiles, and Minuteman missiles. 
and propellant, which is a lot of chemistry. It's simple, extremely dangerous, very boring chemistry. <laughs> you, you don't frequently hear people describe things with those two descriptors next to each other. Extremely dangerous and very boring. Tell me more about that. Which makes it more dangerous. Oh, because sure. Oh, because it's like mundane. If you want to sneeze, you got to file paperwork two weeks in advance in triplicate to get permission <laughs> to sneeze. And then you're working with something that's a high percentage nitroglycerin. And and if you sneeze, it's shock sensitive, and so it can go off. Oh, geez. So how, yeah. when you're working with it, how do you mitigate that? Because, I mean, sneezing sort of an involuntary bodily reaction. Yeah, you, you don't. You do it remotely with robots. Okay. Okay. Um, but even a little bit. I, I worked there for a year and a half, and five people were killed in that year and a half. Oh, God, um, really? Yeah. Like I said, really boring, really dangerous. And the mice would eat propellant. And so if you were driving across the plant site, which was huge in a remote area of Utah, and you would hit a mouse, the propellant that the mouse had eaten could blow your tire off. <laughs> so, yeah, really weird first job. Yeah, uh, I and, would say. And is this literally like your first job? No, uh, I worked for Jefferson County Trail Crew Okay. Um, in high school, which I absolutely loved building trails, but it was my first professional job. Okay. So like first beyond high school, first like, okay, I have my degree. I'm at yeah. least on the trajectory of what I want to do, that kind of thing. Yeah. And the second space shuttle didn't really blow up. It uh, disintegrated oh. in, a, in a fiery streak uh, <laughs> while I worked there. So everything was at this really weird place. We were at a safety standstill so there was nothing going on really but there was still all this really dangerous stuff and we were trying to rewrite procedures and it kind of set me up for the rest of my career of compliance mm. because when something gets up into space there's nothing you can do it has to be right when it leaves the atmosphere and if something goes wrong in a lot of other lines of business it's it's not too bad you might be able to save it it's not going to kill people with space hardware, it absolutely is. It's a high risk game. Yeah. And, and I would say for me, that's like a nightmare job because so much of what I'm doing in the world of public relations and professional communications is like improvisational and reactive. And I, like, I have to react and sort of fix things in the moment or pivot things as, as we can going through layers and layers of very meticulous compliance. That's like, if, if you're going to send me to hell, I'm just going to be doing jobs <laughs> like that, <laughs> like for, yeah. for, from here to eternity. But I can see where even just doing like a tour of that, I, I mean, my dad did not enjoy being in the army, but he said the skills he learned in the army really mm -hmm. set him up beautifully for the rest of his life and everything else after the army seemed really easy. Uh, there's a satisfaction in, in having the right answer. In, in a lot of life, there isn't a right answer, but in math and in compliance, there is a right answer. And then it's just optimizing your processes to get there. Can you do it quicker? Can you do it more efficiently? Can you use less materials? Can you do it safer? And it's like a constantly shifting optimization problem, which is both infuriating, satisfying, <laughs> and fascinating. <laughs> so I, I love it. I've been drawn to that. Yeah, well, I could see where in, in terms of what you've described to me with your background, in terms of your perseverance and, you know, this sort of self-directed uh, way that you approach things, where that would really be satisfying, but also intensely frustrating. 
because like it's a constant evolution of process the way you're describing it. And I suppose I, because this isn't my world, I'd never thought of it that way. Um, because the, the things that I'm working on are to, are, are almost always imperfect. The, the search for perfection is over before it even starts because it's like, we're, 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 we're not going to find this. We're not going to try a good plan today is better than the perfect plan tomorrow. So, right. And on small things, a little bit of variation or deviation from your plan doesn't really matter. Sure. But when those things get big, when you're going to be doing them a million times, you know, one cent extra in your production adds up and, you know, one cut corner in compliance results in a product recall two or three years down the line. So, wow. So, I mean, what you're describing is almost like the butterfly effect, right? Yeah, it can be. Wow. Um, okay. So what ultimately led to you, uh, deciding to leave that job and, and pursue something else? Well, boring and dangerous, pretty much. Okay. Um, Too much boring and dangerous. Yeah. And culturally, I wasn't a very good fit in Utah. I was a young, single female engineer. And, and I, I have a great appreciation of the people that, that live there and the culture there, but I just didn't fit. They, they didn't really know what to do with me. I was the only female on my side of the plant and I was probably 20 years younger than everybody else. Yeah. And I had an engineering degree and it's possible I was part of a diversity initiative or something, but it was just, it was very strange. Yeah. We've, uh, we've upped uh, our number of female employees to one. Okay. Congratulations. Well done. Uh, yeah, I, I could see where that'd be tough. I mean, when, when everyone is twice your age and no one of your same gender, good Lord. Well, and they've all been working together for a long time and there's a culture around space hardware, um, that I didn't know anything about, but all those guys were well indoctrinated into, and I'm not a Mormon and I didn't want to be a Mormon. That was a factor too. Sure. Um, so I, I wanted to save the world, so I decided to come back home uh, and do environmental engineering. I'd always been interested in that and, you know, doing something for the natural world. There's a lot of chemistry in it. So I came back to the Colorado School of Mines um, and got a master's degree in environmental science, wow. which was really cool. Undergrad was brutal and hard, and graduate school was really fun, although... Don't try and get a master's with a thesis in a year and a half. I would not recommend it to anyone. <laughs> no. Um, and again, you, you have this beautiful way of describing things that feels so counterintuitive to the way most people talk about stuff because, I mean, and I know in my experience, I loved getting my master's degree, but it was hard. It was much harder than undergrad. And so you describing undergrad as being brutal and then grad school as being fun I don't think that's necessarily the trajectory for most everyone either. Yeah, I'd learned a lot of skills in undergrad, but graduate school was more the kind of stuff that I wanted to do. It wasn't quite as brain bending. I had most of the basic chemistry already, and it was just learning specific applications of it. Like human toxicology, oh my gosh, so cool. How the body does that, and uh, I could go on forever about cytochrome P450 in your liver. Does a bunch of really neat stuff. What? What? Um, I, well, I don't even know what that is. What is that? So basically, your liver takes stuff and and breaks it down. It uh, uses enzymes. It uses uh, biological catalysis, 
So one of the ways you can think about it is when you drink alcohol, that's ethanol, it doesn't process in your body as ethanol. It gets broken down into um, acetaldehyde or possibly formaldehyde, depending on how your particular liver is doing its thing, um, and then gets different functional groups put on or taken off so that you can excrete it as waste. So your chemistry is, your liver is doing a ton of chemistry all the time. And when you talk about something like heavy metals poisoning, like what makes a poison, it's basically because your liver doesn't know how to make it safe. Okay, so it can't it can't break down these elements into into something that's safe. They can pass through your system, and it just stays right. in there. And and now it's this foreign sub- substance in your body, and your body goes, oh, okay, and what it like dies basically, right? Yeah, or gets damaged. There's all kinds of weird interactions that happen. Sometimes there's substitutions. Like there's some radioactive elements that your body thinks, aha, that's calcium. I'll go stick it in my bones. Oh no. But it's not calcium. <laughs> and, and then it causes radiation damage there. Or I, I don't know. There's a million examples, but it was just really, really cool. That was my favorite class. And, uh, geomicrobiology was also really fascinating because you tend to think of rocks as being slow moving and boring, but there's a ton of microbial processes involved there. There's actually some research that supports most gold nuggets being the shell of microbial communities. Wow. Particular microbes collect tiny, tiny, tiny bits of gold and then stick them together to make a nugget. Well, Dana, what's funny is as you're describing this, because I have a background in working in oil and gas, so I know that rocks have all sorts of things in them. And with the shale revolution that happened 20 years ago, people realized, oh, we can drill into the source rock and figure out how to extract this from here. And so... As I'm listening to you describe this, I have an appreciation for it, for having worked in the energy and natural resources field, because as someone who was not real good at math and science, I have made a career in public affairs out of explaining math and science to people. And so yep. like, you need almost someone like me, some dunce who is terrible at chemistry and geology, to, to be able to come in and go, okay... I need you, our geologists or our geology team or whatever, to explain it to me so that I can then explain it to the public. So in a lot of ways, what I'm doing is is translating. What you're doing right now is kind of similar, and that's that's always really energizing for me. And it sounds like you have a great passion for it, too. Yeah, I've always found myself at that borderline, particularly as I got into management, of translating between the extremely technical people and the financial people or clients or, you know, folks that don't necessarily really speak that heavy of the technical language. You, you've, you've got a very sort of, I would say, no nonsense, but really warm way of describing this. Like you are compelling to listen to in a very easygoing way. I mean, it's just what I like. I think it's exciting and I think that excitement translates. I agreed. Anytime someone clearly likes what they do, you're going to be more compelled to listen to them. Whereas if someone's just going through the motions, you're going to go, okay, yeah, whatever. And you tune it out. But no, I mean, I can, I can see that very much, uh, in terms of what you're doing here. What, what was the next step after grad school for you? Uh, so I was uh, a geochemist, something I swore I would never be. <laughs> my dad was a geologist. And I'm like, okay, I'm never going to be a geologist. I'm never going to be a fashion designer and I'm never going to be a drug dealer. Well, Crap. I failed all three of those. So geochemist for seven years. Um, and I started out doing almost paralegal type work on super fun sites uh, in Wisconsin. Okay. To try and figure out who done it, really. Oh, sure. Um, there was a contaminated river. Where did it come from? So going through stacks and stacks and stacks of pip, 
paper from the 1950s and 60s to figure out who had used a chemical called PCBs. And that was kind of fun and kind of interesting. Um, but I got involved in the mining side. Some folks at my company worked in gold mining specifically, and they were modeling the geology of, of pit lake walls and waste rock dumps to try and figure out if we do something new, like put in a new shaft or dig a new pit in this area or put the heat bleach pad over there, what's going to happen to the groundwater? At least out in Nevada and in many other places too, acid rock drainage is a huge deal. Yeah. Pyrite is a rock, really pretty if you you know see it in a rock shop. But when water gets on it and oxygen gets in there, it makes sulfuric acid. Oh. Um, and that dissolves heavy metals. So um, lead, arsenic, cadmium selenium, um, some of the, some of the really nasty guys. And so the question was, if we do a new whatever at this mine site, what's going to happen to heavy metals in the local groundwater? Yeah. Uh, big deal. And that's also something you and I share that you probably didn't know. I did some PR work on a super fun site here in Colorado, which is now the Rocky Mountain Arsenal National Wildlife Refuge. Mm-hmm. And so Basin F at one point was the most or called the most contaminated square mile on earth. Yeah. So you're familiar with Basin F? Basin F? I am. Yeah. Yeah. That's an environmental case study. I think everybody that goes through environmental (laughs) engineering learns about that. I, I think they have to. And so I learned more about smell mitigation and triple line landfills and things like that, because again, I had to explain this stuff. And so we're working with a lot of different contractors. And so... I mean, everyone knew who it was out at the arsenal. It was the U.S. Army and then followed by Shell. So Mm -hmm. the U.S. Army was making like mustard gas and some really nasty things in the 50s and before. And then Shell came on and made pesticides. And we didn't know or they didn't know or either were derelict or careless or whatever in how they disposed of this stuff. Right. And and you start to get plumes moving underground. Yeah. And, and so we had to work through, you know, and there's people who live nearby. So we have to explain to them what's going on there, how it's being mitigated and and so on and so forth. So hearing you describe that in terms of, you know, pit mining in Nevada, I mean, you could, you could talk about this in pit mining in anywhere, like, uh, you know, gold big in Nevada, you've got copper in Arizona, different kinds of mines in Colorado. And so, Really, really important work. That's I, obviously we didn't talk about this in great detail at the reunion, but uh, I didn't know that that's where your work took you. That's that's terrific. Yeah, I was supporting environmental impact statements, which, as you probably know, are more forward looking rather yeah. than reverse looking. If we do a thing, what do we think is going to happen? And, and inevitably, you can't really know that, but you can at least try to know that. Right. Yeah. There, there's a lot of data that you have to put in there to where you're trying to mitigate or manage future risk. Mm-hmm. Yep. And there's, I'm sure you're familiar with the pebble mine where they took a look at the risks there and said, you know what, the seismic activity going on here, we just can't guarantee that this is going to be safe. Right. And that's, that's a really hard conclusion to come to, but in some cases it's probably the right conclusion. I think almost anyone who has worked as a contractor in this space, uh, or anyone, yeah, I, I would say there are more people who have interacted with the pebble mine than anyone is kind of willing to talk about. Because I worked for a firm that, in in one way or another, and I can't, it wasn't even direct, but we were like subcontracting something else, looking at potential impacts of pebble. I mean that that mm-hmm. thing is just a monster. It's unbelievable. Yeah, and it's sort of in in some ways it's actually a victory for. 
the people that are trying to do environmental. Because that was one of the things that I really found is that a lot of times my job was to, you know, support the mines. They were my clients. And I, I totally understand that. But, you know, my my superhero persona wasn't wasn't always satisfied by that. I wanted to make a more meaningful difference instead of, eh, you know, uh, coming up with reasons why making a potential mess was going to be okay. Right. <laughs> yeah. If you can't go to bed with a clear conscience about it, then you probably shouldn't be doing it. And there are people who have different layer levels of their threshold. It's not to say people are unethical. They've just arrived at the conclusion a little bit differently than others have. Well, that was part of my progression in my career, too, is, you know, I started off uh, making ICBMs uh, and then, you know, polluting groundwater was less bad than that. And then I ended up in hemp and marijuana, where the worst thing that would happen is you'll eat all of the Cheetos in one sitting. <laughs> right. So, so so ultimately, OK, you you left you left this role. And how did you find your way to hemp and cannabis? So in 2014, uh, marijuana, recreational marijuana was legalized in the state of Colorado. And this was a totally different life direction for me. Um, a friend of mine uh, was extracting some marijuana uh, in a way that was really, really unsafe. Hmm. And having a huge safety background from working at NASA and the mines, when I walked him into his house and saw him doing that, I was like, oh, my gosh, you're going to blow up your house. What's wrong with you? What are you doing? Wait a minute. When you say extracting, you're not talking about just like bud trimming. What do you mean by extracting? Uh, running liquid butane over the plant material to extract out the essential oils. So, uh, marijuana plant material can be 15 to 30% THC by weight. And if you extract the essential oils, you can get it up to like 65 to 80% by weight THC. Okay. Or CBD. Same, same thing applies. It was still illegal then, but people were, were making, you know, hash oil and hashish and, you know, homemade brownies and all that stuff at that time. So what my friend was doing was was dangerous and unsafe and stupid. And I thought, well, there's got to be a better way. And supercritical CO2 extraction seemed like that better way to me. Um, so I formed a, a business with my friend and we were going to do mobile CO2 extraction. Wow. So, okay. So basically... You, if, if I can sort of discern the, the business model here. So doing the CO2 extraction, you go to people who, who have a need for this service and basically you'd be a mm -hmm. contractor to what growers or dispensaries or like, what? yeah, that was the idea is that we would go to a grow and extract the oil and give it back to them and they could use it to make um, mostly infused products at that time. Dabbing wasn't really even a thing yet. Ah, sure. That, business model didn't work out. Okay. The state of Colorado very quickly said, no, 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 you can't be running around extracting a, you know, controlled substance. We don't know where you are. That's a bad idea. <laughs> it's almost like that season of Breaking Bad. Have you seen Breaking Bad? Yeah. Where they, they start cooking meth in uh, like the, the houses where they're doing like supposed like pest extermination. Um, it was like perfect. You could tent the house and then they could just, you know, be in there meth shining. And so, yeah, I, I could see where the state of Colorado, maybe they saw that season and they go, please don't do that. Please don't emulate that. Well, and there were no regulate. There were very few regulations. When Amendment 64 passed, it said, this is legal now and we'll make up some rules about it. <laughs> and, and so I went through that whole rulemaking process where 
in the medical marijuana days, because Colorado had medical marijuana before it had recreational marijuana, uh, somebody, I, I didn't do this, I wasn't involved at that time, but you could grow some marijuana and come to the back door of a dispensary and say, hey, I've got, I've got some stuff for sale. And uh, obviously that just wasn't going to fly. And the state of Colorado, I think, did a really good job of regulating it in a way that made the federal government feel comfortable and, and safe that it was at least being controlled. Okay. So when you say you went through a rulemaking, were you, were you there uh, as a member of the public? Were you on a task force where you were writing the rules? Again, this is where our worlds uh, overlap because working for yeah. an oil and gas company, we, we went through a rulemaking where with the proposed rule, the governor got his regu- his staff together with members of industry and said, mm-hmm. you, you all get in a room and work this out. And yep. once you do, then we're going to roll it out to the public or the legislature or whatever. Um, what was your role in that? So I was not on the marijuana boards at the time. I was a little too junior in the industry, but I am on uh, the hemp board now. Cool. All right. Um, so at that time, I was going through the rulemaking as, as rules sort of uh, fell from the sky. I started working for a company called The Growing Kitchen, hmm. which was an early marijuana infu- infused products manufacturer. They did hard candies and caramels and brownies and stuff like that. Um, and I started out just trimming for them part time because I didn't know anything about marijuana. Like when I was growing up, there was drug. It was bad. If you did drug, you were going to die soon. That's okay. it. I didn't know anything about it. Okay. My roommates in college had me convinced there was a skunk living under the house. I was clueless. <laughs> That's phenomenal. Okay, keep going. No notes, so I, no I questions. I had a lot to learn, and I thought that maybe taking a part-time job as a trimmer would help me you know, understand cannabis because I just had absolutely no clue. I'd, I'd never smoked it before. Um, you know, the joke about Bill Clinton, you know, I didn't inhale. Mm-hmm. Well, I have always struggled to inhale. I've really tried to like marijuana, but I just, I can't breathe it in. I can't. My body just goes. <laughs> well, congrats on never getting started smoking cigarettes. Beca- yeah. Because that, that certainly anything. helped me. So I don't know. I've never been able to get into it. <laughs> God bless you. Because um, the cigarette thing, when I remember, it, yeah, it, and it here's the problem. People always say like beer or coffee or whatever is an acquired taste. Like mm-hmm. smoking is an acquired skill. Mm-hmm. And, and if you never sort of cross that Rubicon and that threshold, you're probably better off without it ultimately. So good for you. Well, uh, eating an entire bag of longleaf chewing tobacco as a teenager kind of cured me of the tobacco thing. That you never ate- really wanted to do anything with it. You, you ate it? I did, yeah. Somebody... Some some uh, neighbor kids actually told me that it was beef jerky and dared me to eat it. And I was like, this is the worst beef jerky I've ever had. But I did. I ate it and predictably got incredibly sick. Yeah. I mean, God, did you get like any nicotine poisoning or anything from that? I felt awful. I don't know. I don't know what the symptoms of nicotine poisoning are, but I, I puked a lot and felt dizzy and lightheaded and really gross for days. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, and that's one place where you and I diverge. I've never done chewing tobacco, in, intentionally or unintentionally. I mean, it smelled good, but mostly it was it was a dare. I think I was probably 13 or 14. Sure. But yeah, I mean, I wow. that <laughs> I've never heard of that, Dana. That sounds deeply, deeply unpleasant. <laughs> 
Yeah. So anytime somebody's like, ah, oh, you want some tobacco product, whatever it is, I'm like, mm, nope. No, I'm all no set. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, but I didn't know anything about smoking marijuana either or any of the rest of the cannabis uh, world at all. Okay. So I was uh, trimming. So the plant has a bunch of leaves in the bud. You have to trim the leaves out of the bud to, to make it into a smokable flower product. And uh, one day the owner came in and said, you know something about chemistry. Uh, our extraction <laughs> department just quit. Do you want to be our extractor? And I had some experience at least and I was hoping to maybe bring CO2 in. They were doing butane extractions, which butane is a really good solvent. Um, chemistry wise, it's a great process, but it also has a bit of a bad reputation because mm. people think, ew, you extracted that with be- uh, with butane? I don't want that. And in some ways, a lot of the people that got into marijuana are very natural, whole food, plant medicine type people. And so sure. they didn't they didn't really want that. But I ran the extraction department there for about a year and a half, I guess. And I learned a lot. And I was not a very good fit culturally. Like a lot of the people that I worked with had been potheads forever and they absolutely loved the product. And I thought it was interesting, but once I had kind of learned how to do the chemistry, it was not as interesting anymore. And regular startups are crazy and hemp and marijuana startups are like three times as crazy. Well, sure. I mean, especially, so like what year was this? You said 2014, right? Like That was 2014 and 2015. So the regulations were... We're all over the map. Everybody was getting in from the green rush. There were people coming out of the garage that had been making hundreds of thousand dollars growing stuff in their basement. And we're now trying to go legit. It was, it was a very interesting time. For sure. And I mean, during that time, I interviewed the former pot critic for the Denver Post. And he said sometimes he would go and sample products and they would give him like a lollipop in a Ziploc bag with a business card in it. And and, yeah. he, and he's going, oh my god, you know, like what what is this shit that that you're giving me? Yeah. And, and so what you had, what you're describing, is a lot of pot enthusiasts, with right. a, without a lot of process or business savvy. Not a lot of business savvy and very little engineering or manufacturing experience, because it was such a gray area at that time that only the people that were willing to take a lot of risk and really loved the plant were were even in the space the more professional people just just weren't there yet yeah 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 they were now sure yeah i mean now the the whole industry is much more modernized and i think like on, on a certain cultural level some of that i think is to its detriment when it becomes a little bit too much corporate but on the other hand you've got people who are like you know with uh six sigma kind of like um, certifications, you know, overseeing mm-hmm. process and you have QAQC people and it gives you a lot more assurance as a consumer that what you're getting is not going to harm you. Right. And we don't, as consumers, we don't necessarily think about all that stuff. You go to the store, you buy a box of macaroni and you don't think how much testing and safety and control is behind that back of box of macaroni. You just expect that it won't kill you. <laughs> And right, God, we're that trying was to have not a in place yeah. in the early days in the marijuana industry because a lot of the safety regulations like OSHA are federal. And so a lot of the early owners said, well, it's federally illegal, so we don't have to follow those rules. <laughs> That's an interesting way of interpreting that. 
Well, like I said, they, the people that got in early were the people that were really willing to take a ton of risk. A lot of them yeah. had been black market operators and, you know, were committing felonies all the time to do their business. And so even going more in the direction of being legitimate was, uh, was a big step for some of them. Yeah, that, that makes good sense. Well, I'll tell you what, we're more than 40 minutes into this and we haven't even talked about your current company. Let's, uh, oh, that's true. let's, let's pivot to that. And so, I mean, because this journey has been fascinating and I could talk, I mean, you and I have a lot more in common than I expected when it comes to EISs and super fun sites and, you know, writing rules and regulations and experience with that. And we could compare notes all day on it. But, um, in terms of where you are now, talk me through what brought you to mind, body, soul, medicinals and what, what are you guys and what are you doing for them? Yeah. So Two quick steps. After I worked at the Growing Kitchen, I worked at an analytical laboratory that was testing uh, marijuana and cannabis products. Um, and then I went to work for my first hemp company, which was Vapor Distilled. Um, and I went through a bunch of different startup stages there. At first, I was hired on as an engineer to design a novel extraction technique that extracts with just hot air instead of a solvent. So that was a lot of thermodynamics and plumbing and trying to figure that piece out. And then I grew with that production or grew with that company to start the production department, um, was doing a lot of interaction with clients to see what they wanted and needed. Uh, and then grew again into doing the compliance piece um, as the rules and regulations started to come into place. And in a lot of ways that really set the stage for me to go out on my own. In November of 2018, my first son was born, which, as you know, is a life-changing event. Very much so. And uh, I stayed with Vapor Distilled for another year, but I, I wanted to shift my life in a way that had me home more and able to be with my kids a little bit more. And uh, I was seeing an acupuncturist at the time, and he really encouraged me to kind of get out of the, the somewhat limited role that I had at that company. Cause he said, I, I think you can do it. I think you could do the whole thing. You're, you're smart enough. You're curious enough. Um, and so I actually founded mind, body, soul medicinals with him. Oh, wow. Um, okay. Yeah. He's, he's my co-owner and partner. Um, and he has 20 years of acupuncture practice and a lot of Chinese herbal knowledge. Quick flashback to college. Uh, I did a lot of, uh, traditional Shaolin temple Kung Fu and have a second degree of black belt. Wow. So I learned a ton about Chinese philosophy and the medicinal herbs and uh, meditation and whatnot. So our vision was to create products that if someone was going to see an acupuncturist, they could take home um, and help treat themselves outside of the clinic. Or, you know, as everybody knows, not everybody can afford acupuncture. Sure. So something that would help people, even if they couldn't afford it, sort of bringing uh, Chinese medicinal remedies more into the mainstream and pairing them with CBD. Because in some cases, that's a really great pairing, um, particularly for pain management. Yeah, this this is something that would have really come in handy in 2017 when I herniated a disc in my back and was spending a lot of money on physical therapy, which was all really great. But I did some acupuncture and it, it was helpful. I was Man, I, I was really just Frankensteining together my treatment program because the health insurance, uh, what do I want to say, labyrinth, is so difficult to navigate that at a certain yeah. point, you go, I just got to get some relief here, and I, I'm willing to try just about anything. So what you're describing yeah. sounds like it would have been right in my wheelhouse in terms of what I was experiencing at the time. So that's that's phenomenal. Yeah. 
And a lot of people, I mean, the top three reasons why people take CBD are um, pain, mood, anxiety, and sleep. And for some people, it helps a lot. Uh, your endocannabinoid system is is different than every person, so it may help one person a lot. It may not help the next person as much. Different applications and different people, but a lot of people do get some benefit for it. So we started our business. I started there full time January first of twenty twenty. Oh, John, John, John. Turns <laughs> out that was really bad timing. Oh man! Anytime someone's telling me a story and they get to about November of twenty nineteen, I go, "Oh God, here comes the turn." <laughs> I mean, how you frame it is important. And, sure. and looking back, it was actually one of the best things that I could have done because it enabled me to stay home and stay away from other people uh, because during 2020, I was pregnant, pregnant with my second kid. And as, as you may or may not know, uh, the COVID complications were worse for pregnant people. Mm. Um, so I had a very strict quarantine. I have some roommates, so I would wear a mask and 95 when I left my bedroom. Oh, geez. So, go to the bathroom, go to the kitchen and 95 mask, which was absolutely no fun. And working from home with a two year old trying to shove a toy truck up your nose, it will improve your patient skills a lot <laughs> or drive you completely mad. Um, eh, you yeah. Your story is the first that rivals my own wife's second pregnancy story, where at 25 weeks, she tore her meniscus uh, in her knee, had a bucket handle tear in her meniscus, had to have the fire department come and carry her out, and then had to have knee surgery while awake. Uh, because wow. obviously, she can't go under general at that point. Yep. And, yep. Then, and then afterward, she couldn't take Advil. And, and, yep. and so the inflammation was still there, so it still hurt. Um, your story is the first one to rival that. You know, it was a new type of challenge. <laughs> as, as if that's one you were looking for, right? It, like... <laughs> <laughs> well, like I said, the advantage of being dyslexic is every problem is nearly impossible. So <laughs> you learn how to just plow through them. My my, um, my wife has some mild dyslexia too. I, I hope she doesn't mind me saying that. I can't remember if I've said that on here before. But so again, the, the parallels here, Dana, are, are quite strange. Yeah. Despite it being 2020, we actually did pretty well as as a business. Um, I had a lot of uh, wholesale clients that I knew before I had started the new business um, that I'd been making products for for years. Okay, um, and okay. so that that had started uh, when I was back at Vapor Distilled, and that company kind of went a different direction, so there was no conflict of interest there. Uh, January was our first month. So it was kind of slow. February was huge. Um, we did a, a, a lot of uh, tea product. Um, I'm not sure if it's still around bef uh, anymore, but performance tea. It was Chinese medicinal herbs and CBD in a, in a powdered tea packet. Um, and then in March, I don't know what your experience was, but the world just stopped. Oh, yeah. No, um, I lost like 75% of my business. Yeah, just nothing happened in March. Pretty much ha nothing happened in April. In May and June, a, a few small orders started coming back. Um, and I kind of shifted the direction of the business. Um, and we were developing our website and had some e-commerce and online sales. But I really went way in for the wholesale um, and, and contacted the customers that I knew and some new folks and just asked, what do you need? How can I help you yeah. doing R&D stuff, uh, doing some compliance consulting? 
started to build that back up. Um, I also was doing consulting for another company, which I still work for, Life Science Holding. And I do everything for them. I'm the chief science officer. So uh, I look at new properties. I look at equipment, do some production for them, kind of a lot of different hats. And working for them and working on my own business kind of together allowed me to survive yeah. 2020. Um, for me, the worst of it was last January because, you know, you have savings and it lasts for a while and you can handle some unpredictabilities and some bumps. And in January, COVID was really bad. Um, I wasn't able to work for life science for a little while. I ran the financials and it became clear to me that my, my business with mind, body, soul was just, was not going to be enough to support me and, and my partner. And, and he had been, you know, working really hard on his acupuncture practice all through 2020. And, and that was very difficult for him as well. Um, so it was time to make some different decisions. And I love what I do. I love doing R and D. I love wholesale stuff. I love my customers to some degree. I'm, I'm in it because I have freedom. You know, the great thing about owning your own business is that you can work whenever you want, as long as it's all the time. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, so, and, and I always say, this is the joke I always make. It's not that I'm ever done. It's that there are times I choose not to do it. Exactly. Yeah. And, and learning to balance that has definitely been a little bit of a challenge, but I have enough flexibility that I feel like it can work with it. So we decided to split the company and send all the wholesale business that I'd been doing into a new company called Pink Leopard Innovation. Um, and that was mostly for, for regulatory reasons. Um, Chinese herbal medicinals are regulated really different than CBD. CBD is kind of over-regulated because it has some THC in it. Um, and so Todd being able to split off what he wanted to do with the acupuncture and the Chinese herbs and then having all the risk and liability in a different LLC really made a lot of sense. Sure. So I still co-own my Soul Medicinals with him, um, but I'm really focusing on Pink Leopard these days. Um, and... I've been around for long enough. Everyone takes it so seriously. And I, you know, sometimes you just have to laugh or you're going to cry. Yeah. <laughs> and so I decided I, I've been to Burning Man many times and, and it's very artistic and creative and silly. And uh, the first year I went, I didn't know anything about it. I had no idea. So they said, come prepared to camp by yourself in the desert for a week. And I did. I had my little backpacking stove, my tent. And the first day I got there, somebody was like, you didn't bring any lingerie. And I'm like, I never needed lingerie camping before. <laughs> so I had to get in touch with my creative side. And Pink Leopard is the dumbest color. It's absolutely the dumbest color that could possibly <laughs> exist, which is why I love it. <laughs> absolutely. My favorite genre of things are things too stupid to exist. And yeah, it's just it, it's crazy and I love it. Absolutely. I, I've written about this before, but I have a, a cross-stitched framed like a framed cross stitch of dmx lyrics uh, in my house and so people like yeah. you, you'll see people read it and they go oh this is nice and i'll start reading it and they and you go they go wait these are rap lyrics you go yeah they sure are i i love i love stuff like that so pink leopard perfect yeah the absurdity of it is is kind of nice and that that was like the one thing that really kept me going in in january i was entering the third trimester which is just awkward and uncomfortable and and things were bad financially things were bad in the world politically things were bad sure and so oh god that that 
pink spark of silliness is is what inspired me and and kept me going. Um, and it, it took a while to get it all arranged, but I'm I'm now working on that and uh, doing a getting ready to re- launch a retail brand of of really silly CBD products. Fun. Because I've never done marketing before, and I don't know about you, but I don't know much about wine. So if I go into the wine store, I just buy the one with a pretty label. Uh, that well, okay. So what's funny is there are a lot of like studies or tests or whatever that you'll put the same wine in two different bottles, and one mm-hmm. bo- one bottle has a fancy label, and the other one has a less fancy label, and people mm-hmm. will rate the one with the fancy bottle a little higher. Yeah. And and so, it, but it's like the same wine, so. To that end, yes, some of these these decisions get made based on packaging. So you're absolutely right. And I, I my feeling is, to your point, this CBD industry, I've had some CBD folks on here before. Um, mm-hmm. One is like more geared towards sports people, right? Mm-hmm. And one is more geared towards sort of luxury people. And mm-hmm. I, I don't feel like either of them really spoke to me in a profound way. Like both great products. But as mm-hmm. as far as like who I feel like their target consumer is, n- neither of them really spoke to me very strongly. So yeah, I, I think I think you're you're filling a niche that's ready to be filled. Well, and the the tagline is taking siri taking silly seriously because of course I've got this huge compliance background. Oh yeah, so it's not it's not really a silly product. It's it's very intentionally you know controlled and and engineered and arranged. But uh, I have some artist friends who were not doing well last year. And so I decided to go really art heavy and goofy and silly. It's kind of like uh, retro 1950s styling. Fun. And, and, and it kind of just points out the fact that, yeah, life is hard sometimes. You have pain sometimes. You're suffering sometimes. The idea was actually born with the CBD breakup frosting. I was, I was talking with uh, a, a lady who's pretty much my sister-in-law. She's like, well, what would you do if you could do anything? And I was like, man, I would make CBD frosting. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> you know, when you're having a bad day, you just broke up somebody and you want to eat the whole thing of frosting, but you know you shouldn't. What if it was healthy? What if you could justify eating the whole tub of frosting? <laughs> That's phenomenal. And uh, she's like, yeah, go with that. Like, there's something there. There's something about, like, being compliant, but being absurd and and appreciating the little things in life by making them pink or making them silly or, or making somebody laugh that, that makes it a little bit sweeter because I've been so serious and I like my creative side. I'm, I'm just getting to know it really, but I like it. Well, chemical engineering, super fun sites, uh, you know, pit mines leaking into or leaching into groundwater. And now here we are talking about making CBD frosting. Um, <laughs> it's quite the journey. And I, I, I can tell you, Dana, I, I didn't know exactly what to expect coming into this, but this has been some of the most fun I've had because this has checked so many boxes for me that I almost never get to talk about. <laughs> and so, nice. yeah, absolutely. And so this is the time on the show when we do plugs. So feel free to plug Pink Leopard. Feel free to plug Mind, Body, Soul. Anything you want to plug. I don't want to put words in your mouth. Floor is yours. Well, uh, mbsmedicinals.com is the e-commerce site for Mind, Body, Soul. Uh, we have five different types of uh, Chinese medicinal salves on there, as well as gummies and tinctures. Um, and we'll be doing more on the Chinese medicinal side there in the future. And then uh, pinkleo.fun 
is uh, <laughs> Pink Leopard's new site, and, and I'm just building it. It's just a front page right now, but I'm about to launch a couple of products. I'm going to do an orange creamsicle tincture, um, a CBD bath bomb, and uh, some really cool lube. I've been looking for the right CBD lube for a long time. Wow. As we get older, uh, some things are less comfortable. Sure. Or, you know, if you're stressed out, if you're tired or, or whatever, um, lube can, can be really important. And for a long time, all that was available was the oil-based lubes, which will stain your sheets. Can't really use it with condoms. Mm-hmm. So finally found a good uh, water-based lube. Um, which can definitely help out with pain. Um, I'm producing a ridiculous quantity of breast milk right now. And so that uh, affects my hormone balance. I'm, I'm really grateful to be able to donate some of that milk to babies in the NICU that need it. Wow. But um, little on the dry side. <laughs> so, <laughs> sure. <laughs> so the lube really helps with that. Or, uh, you know, plenty of people just just have some some pain or some uncertainty with it. So No, absolutely. Uh, and, and and in this space, I mean, the only lube that's really well known is like Foria, which is like a different experience too. That's like THC lube. Yeah, there's Foria. There's a couple of others. Um, Privy Peach is one that I really love. Uh, back in the day, I got the chance to to work with her, and she's got an absolutely amazing uh, journey as well. If people want other CBD products, I would definitely recommend hers. Phenomenal. All right. Well, I'll tell you what. I'm going to link to all of that in the companion blog piece that's in johnofalltrades.us. Also in the show notes, if you're listening on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, and now, as of recently, Amazon Music and Audible, um, you can find links to all of that in there. And I'll tell you what, Dana Shirestone, unreal. Like This was such a fun show because we covered so much ground in our time together that... No matter who you are, you're going to get something out of this. I'm so happy we reconnected, and I wish you nothing but continued success. Well, maybe we should get uh, your wife and, and I on sometime to, to talk about being being moms in the coast, post-COVID era, because that's a whole different topic. God, no joke. All right. We'll see what we can do. All right. Thanks, Dana. All right. Bye. And that'll do it for episode 303 of the John of All Trades podcast with Dana Shirestone. Be sure to check out all those links in the show notes or on the companion blog piece at johnofalltrades.us. More than 350 episodes there for you to explore as well. The John of All Trades podcast is a production of Deft Communications. Check out Deft on the web, D-E-F-T-C-O-M.us. If you have a communications project you need to do, if you need to communicate more or better, talk to the media, talk to your internal people, if you need training, can I help you with your presentation skills? Whether you're going in front of the camera, whether you're doing a TED Talk, or whether you just want to be more confident, more poised, and more focused in front of your team, I'm your guy. Additionally, are you thinking about starting a podcast? Because I can help you do that. i got a couple more in the hopper right now. Thrilled to get to bring those to market. So if you have an idea, I can help you formulate it and then execute it to whatever extent you need. I have all the technical capability as well as the front-end production know-how to get your show off the ground. Hit me up, john, J-O-N, at defcom.us, D-E-F-T-C-O-M dot U-S. On social media, J-O-A-T-Pod is the handle. Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, and Instagram. Episode previews go up on Mondays, sometimes Tuesdays. That's Facebook only. New episodes drop normally on Wednesdays. This was a Thursday episode because of the holiday. And that's on Podcatchers Everywhere iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, and now Amazon and Audible. Leave us a rating, leave us a review, hit that subscribe button, brand new episodes come directly to you. I'm out of here for this week, I will be back here very soon, and until I hear you again, say goodnight, Gracie.
That's good, Johnny. 